Hola, mi gente. My name is Jessica Yanez, and I want you to join me for some wine and chisme. The Wine and Chisme podcast was created to amplify voices across communities of color, all while drinking a glass of wine. From wine talk, interviews, and recaps of all things pop culture, join me every Wednesday for the chisme. Please make sure to check out the Wine and Chisme podcast and other amazing podcasts as part of the Latina Podcasters Network. Hola, mi gente. Welcome to another episode of the Wine and Chisme podcast, a podcast created to amplify voices and share the stories of people from marginalized and communities of color doing remarkable things, all while sipping on a glass of wine. I'm your host, Jessica Yangas. This week, my guest is Dr. Norma Reyes. Norma is a motivational speaker, writer, and coach. She holds a doctorate in adult professional and community education from Texas State University, San Marcos. Norma also holds a master's of arts in counseling and guidance and is a licensed professional counselor with the state of Texas. In this episode, Norma and I discuss how traumas, microaggressions, and general childhood adversity follows us well beyond our childhood and affects the way we perceive ourselves when it comes to our career choices. She shares her college experiences that helped her decide why this work needed to be done. So grab your glass of wine and join us for the chisme. Hola, Norma. Welcome to the Wine and Chisme podcast. How are you today? Doing good. Minus all the extra. <laughs> No, I have a lot of things going on. So it's like, <laughs> well, one more thing, and at least you get to have a glass of wine during this extra thing that you got going on. Yes, yes, <laughs> I do. It's a special, special glass of wine. <laughs> well, I can't wait to hear about it. But before you know, and we have a lot of stuff to kind of cover. But before we get into the cheese, may we always start with the wine? Um, today, the wine that I'm drinking is a Sauvignon Blanc from. La Pincoya, it's a uh, wine out of the San Antonio region, the San Antonio Valley of Chile. Oh. Yeah. And it's been hot, so I wanted to have something, you know, a that I could have cold. And it, so when I was reading the tasting notes, this one says it pairs great with shellfish, goat cheese, and vegetarian dishes. So which all of those things excite me because I love fish, like, I could totally be a pescatarian. I love goat cheese. And and although I've been like reining in the dairy intake and I've been eating more like more plant-based diet, but not completely. So this kind of actually goes very well. And it's a very, you can even, I can even smell it. It's a very citrus forward. It says medium bodied and high in acidity. But I wanted to find out what does it mean when a wine is high in acidity? And so it has to have, a wine has to have the right balance of acidity because if it's too high, it'll taste sour and sharp. It'll taste like excessively sour and sharp. But if it's too low, it'll taste like really flat and doesn't really have any defined flavors. So it makes sense that this one is kind of high in acidity because it is more of a citrusy wine. So I'm going to take a drink, but tell me about the kind of wine you're having right now. So I'm having, it's just barefoot Moscato. 
But what makes it special is that the previous owners left us a really sweet note about buying the house and they left us two bottles of wine. And nice. so we just opened it. My husband just opened it and he said to the house. So, okay. That does make it a special bottle. Okay. So I have to be honest. I took a drink of this wine and it didn't say what kind of flavors it was on the bottle. Cause I like to read the flavors. The first thing I tasted was grapefruit and I don't like grapefruit. And I can taste the other citrusy behind it, but I don't like, like I said, I don't like grapefruit. So this wine will be saved for any guests that may come over that like <laughs> that type of flavor of wine. <laughs> grapefruit. I think I, I, I actually think I would like some. I think I've had grapefruit stuff that I've liked. I know that sounds funny. This is actually a bubbly Moscato. I don't think I've ever had a bubbly one, but yeah. Nice. I like it. Yes. Well, I like I said, I I I try and read the labels. It didn't say it just said citrus, but it didn't say anything about grapefruit. And literally that's the first thing I tasted. And I was like, crap. It's just I think it's a probably a good wine, but like I said, when I, you don't I don't like grapefruit, I don't like chocolate, I don't like caramel, anything like that. So that's why I try and read the labels. That's why it's so important, right? When you go to try and read the labels, I should have looked it up, but I was in such a rush because I didn't get it, but I got it today and put it in the freezer. So it was nice and cold, but my bad. Oh, well, you live and you learn. <laughs> it's true. You don't know what you don't know. Exactly. So I'm excited because you are a Tejana. Yes. And you are in San Antonio and I lived in Dallas for 15 years. So I kind of say that I grew up in California, but I became an adult and I found myself literally and figuratively in Dallas. So there's definitely some questions I have in regards to that Texas sensibility, because I always find it very interesting. But before we get into that, tell me about your experience as far as growing up as a first generation Mexican-American in Texas. Yes. So first I put a disclaimer because <laughs> Texas is huge and each region is very, very different. So like how I grew up in San Antonio is way different than anyone outside of the greater area of San Antonio. So that's my disclaimer. This is my experience in San Antonio. And of course, everyone's experience is unique. Um, for myself, I... I think my my experience was just so it's just so different from the typical thing people see as like Mexican. And I say that because uh, my 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 dad came from Mexico alone, and I think he had a cousin or something. But he was it, we don't have an extended side from my dad in San Antonio, and for my mom. Uh, most of her extended family was in Dallas. And so I didn't grow up with like the typical cousin, uncles and everything. So the beginning of my first 10 years of life, we lived in the west side of San Antonio, which is like the inner city. Um, and it's, it's a lot of more recent immigrants and then that the poverty cycle area. And then about nine, 10 years old, my parents bought a house on the south side of San Antonio, which is like a level up. <laughs> and it was very interesting there for myself because 
in the West side, I really didn't even realize that I was different. I didn't know that I was Mexican. I mean, I knew I was Mexican, but I didn't realize that everyone else wasn't Mexican. (laughs) As funny as it sounds. (laughs) And so when we moved to the South side, it was a different type of Mexican. It was the border cross me type of Mexican. It was a generations of Latinos who didn't see themselves as Mexicans. And I don't speak for everyone. This is just my perspective, of course. They see and themselves as Tejanos. Yeah. So being Mexican became kind of like a negative connotation, you know, like, or people like, oh, I don't speak Spanish. Why would I speak Spanish? And that has to do a lot with the culture in San Antonio um, around my mom's time. And they weren't allowed to speak Spanish in school in San Antonio. And so a lot of people don't know how to speak Spanish because of that. And they didn't teach it to their children. I Um, totally get that. My dad grew up in Brownsville. And that's like total border town, right? You have Brownsville, and then on the other side of the border, you have Matamoros. And he would get in trouble at school, both my parents, in their own ways. My mom here in California, my dad in Texas, would get in trouble for speaking Spanish at school. So then your mindset becomes, well, I can't, like, I need to pass on English to my kids because they're going to get in trouble. Mm -hmm. So I totally understand that. Yeah, and so it's it's so interesting because I didn't realize the dynamics how different they were until I was in college and traveled, and I had people speak to me in Spanish when I would go to restaurants versus in English, and here, you know, well, in San Antonio, it was like a no-no. Like, you didn't just immediately assume people spoke Spanish. You spoke to people in English and then in Spanish if needed, and so um, back to growing you know moving into that neighborhood being new not having any extended family it was completely I think different for me than maybe other people in the region that maybe had extended family because then on the south side it's like I don't even know how to explain it's like everybody knows each other and I didn't have that so (laughs) I don't know well where to go I mean it wasn't a negative experience it was just my experience of not having that and wanting to have that right we kind of answer what I wanted to ask next, but but there is still something to that because I always joke, well, I, because like I said, I lived in Dallas for 15 years and I have a lot of friends that are born and raised in Texas, very Tejano, and I always joke that there's something about Texans that when you're a baby, they must take you into something, zap something in your brain because there is nobody prouder than Texans, people from Texas. My dad has not lived there since he was 17 years old. And he's like, I'm a Texan. I'm like, you're over 60 years old. No, you're a Californian. Like you've lived not even a barely a quarter of your life in Texas, please. Right. But I'm also the opposite way when it comes to California. I'm like, no, I'm a California girl. Even when I was in Texas for that long. So tell me like, that experience that you had, do you still have like that Tejana pride? How do you feel about your Latinidad being from Texas versus anywhere else? Well, there's no better Latino than the one from Texas. No. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Are you um, comments? <laughs> yeah. Um, 
I, I mean, there's, I think for myself, I find myself saying, you know, I'm from, I'm very proud to be from San Antonio. Yeah. It's funny you say that. Definitely. We're definitely different. I was thinking about um, the Texas shirts, right? You know, if I don't know, I'm sure all states have their shirt, but I'm like, why do we buy Texas shirts if we're in Texas? And I mean, like, why you know we're not leaving the state and wearing a texas shirt i mean i guess some people are but well that's like even austin right people in austin they will still keep austin weird shirt yeah <laughs> i would say yes definitely very very proud and definitely passing that on to my children i mean my son knows he lives in texas he's four years old and it's funny to hear Right, because when you have a child, they kind of repeat stuff that you don't even realize that you're saying. And he'll be like, we're in Texas. And I'm like, will we say that? I mean, does he hear that? Because I mean, I just not like I, and, um, you know, kind of explaining to him that all of, of Texas is, is a whole state. Because he'll ask, you know, we'll be driving somewhere. And he's like, are we still in Texas? And he's like, yes. I mean, we have to drive like 10 hours to, yeah. to get out of Texas. So. I drive several times, yeah. I could go on forever about Texas, so <laughs> I mean, you should interrupt me. No, but I love that because to me, I'm very, I love hearing, you know, how people grew up and what their experience is because all of our experiences are different. Whether you grow up in a Black family, whether you grow up in a Latino family, whether you grow up in a Filipino family or anything like that, our our experiences are all still so different even when it can they can even be so different within the same household yeah. right the way i grew up and my sisters are 5 and 7 years younger than i am the way i grew up and the way they grew up is still very different because oh, yeah. my parents ended up in different seasons when they were my age versus where i was at my age yeah do you have any siblings and what's your relationship with them i do i have two older sisters and um one so you're the baby of the girls kind of I don't know so I guess I'm a middle child and they always say middle children that come up with all kinds of crazy stuff so I say I'm the first middle only child <laughs> <laughs> I'm in denial of my middle child status I have a younger brother two older sisters um have a different father for me and then they went to go live with them when I was like about nine. And so that's why I say I'm like the older, see, I'm like the yeah. first, I'm my dad's first. I think it had, that had a lot to do with it. Like why I didn't see myself as a middle child because I'm my dad's first. Um, and then my little brother, he's four years younger. And my sisters are four and five years older. So there's like a, a big, big gap. I think I kind of got used to being you know, alone for a little bit. And then did your been, dynamic within the, within the house change when they went to move with their dad? Um, I think it, it's funny. I was reflecting on this just a few days ago that I think the reason why me and my two older sisters weren't as close as I would have liked and felt them as being my sisters is because I think they had more of a caregiver role to me. Um, you know, older siblings are always kind of helping with the younger siblings. And so I, I think that's why, like, it was just like, I lost my caregivers. And, and that's what I remember. They would take care of us when my parents would work. 
And the dynamic that changed from there was then I became the responsible one for my brother, who was four years younger. Um, so at nine and 10 years old, kind of like the latchkey thing, right? Like, you know, to come home and make sure that the front door was locked and I would walk us home from school and everything. Um, so I, it was like, a, it was like, a, I guess that role changed. Like it was like the baton being changed. Like, okay, now you're the one. And and that's probably where I learned how to do all that, like to be responsible for us because we were alone at home while my parents worked. Yeah. And you know, what I find really interesting. I was talking to one of my friends and she was saying how it, within the Latino community, we're very much like the guy, the boys get away with so much. They're so pampered. They're so, you know, there's this thing that we have in our culture in regards to the women taking care of everything, right? And she was saying she was listening to some of the episodes and she was saying telling me how in the black community it's opposite. Like as soon like if there's no male father figure in the house, the boy is automatically like the man of the house. And you start preparing your your son to be the man of the house and to regardless of his age, even if he has older sisters. And she goes, and I didn't realize how pampered you pamper your boys. And I was like, yes, girl. We didn't have that in ours because I'm the oldest of three girls. So there was none of that in my immediate family. Like we are very a female centric family. But I would see that with like the Theos and the boys and the, you know, like them being served and all of this. So it's just so interesting. That's why I wanted to ask if you're role changed from being the youngest of the girls to now being the oldest and it sounds like it did what did your parents like do for work and what were their expectations of you growing up so my mom at that time she worked for pizza hut she'd go in the morning and get out in the afternoon so fortunately she was home usually I think about three or four in the afternoon because I remember her like cooking and everything for my for my dad and my dad did tree trimming he still does that now at like 60 something years old <laughs> he recently trimmed my tree um at our old house and it was it was like I, I was a child watching him for the first time I was so amazed to see him climb that tree you know I guess as an adult you realize the ability to be able to do that like he was climbing it and what is that repelling himself up and repelling the um chainsaw I was just amazed I was I was so amazed I like recorded it I shared it with all my coworkers. I'm like look at my dad so proud my expectations were for me to do well in school I it's really funny my my parents, I could see growing up, they had like different, I guess, opinions on how I was to be raised. My dad found school to be very important, but at the same time, he also had that very machismo, expected me to be doing a lot of domestic things. For my mom, I don't know if it was just she preferred to do it herself because she liked it a certain way or, you know, because so she would just she would get fastidiada with me, right? Like, get out of here. Like, let me do it. And so, and for myself, I definitely am not <laughs> a very domestic person. And so um, I, would, I would make up excuses like, oh, I can't reach the sink. So I remember my dad clearly making me a little stool so I can be able to reach the sink. But though you can't reach it, you can now. <laughs> 
I just remember that clearly. But and then like my mom, she would she was very picky, like very meticulous in everything. And so I whenever I would clean, she'd come home and she'd complain, like, oh, you but I would clean and I would give and so finally I just stopped cleaning because I found that I would get in trouble anyway. So I'd be like, okay, fine. And then I think as a punishment, once my dad was like, fine, you got to go mow the lawn if you're not going to clean inside the house. And that I think he had me do it like one time. I don't know that that worked. <laughs> so but what were your expectations of yourself growing up? Were you somebody who was really like self-motivated or were you somebody who needed that that external encouragement to help keep you going, whether it's through school or any like activities you did, anything like that? Where did that motivation come from? So, yeah, definitely very self-motivated. I mean, I read books all the time. I would ride my bike to the library um, or walk to the library. I think it was maybe about half a mile to the library. And so, I mean, I would read so many books all the time. And with school, I think because I read so much I and the school district wasn't necessarily the best. I mean, I didn't have to do, exert too much effort to do well in school. Um, unfortunately, that made me kind of lazy because in, in college, my freshman year, I expected the same amount of effort to do well. And I did very poorly my freshman year. That was a rude awakening. Tell me about that. (laughs) You know, I think a lot of times, in fact, in a previous podcast, she was saying how she was very fortunate to be able to go to a school and, and be able to take some college level classes. And then by the time she went to college, when she went to university, there was a lot of kids that were maybe the top of their class, but the schools weren't the best schools. So they found themselves struggling once they got to a top performing university. So I would love to hear like what your experience was that from going from making that leap to high school to you went to um, Cal, or I was about to say Cal, (laughs) Texas State University, San Marcos. Yes, yes, I did. Um, And I wouldn't, it's not necessarily like a top school or anything. It's just a regular school. But um, going from my school, which was not very challenging at all, I graduated in the top 10%. I think it was like number 23 out of now, like... When you were graduating, because I think, I know, I don't know if it's still going on, but I know for a long time, and I don't know if it's happening when you're in high school, like if you graduated within the top 10%, you basically got to cho- choose whichever university you want to go to within Texas, and you would absolutely guarantee yes. that guaranteed acceptance. Yes. Yes. Um, During that time, and I'm not sure if it still is, but yes, during that time, that was in 2002, it was the top 10% rule in the state of Texas. I believe that they've tweaked it some because that left like almost no room for people to go to school, like to UT and A&M, the big schools. Um, It was like waitlisting a lot of people. But um, for myself, actually, that was kind of interesting because other schools, like private schools, like Baylor had sent me this literally one page pre-filled out application for me to just pretty much sign my name and submit it. It was, I didn't even have to do an essay, nothing. I was just accepted pretty much. So I applied to Texas State. I was really determined that I was not going to stay in San Antonio because it was my way out of being under my parents. So very common theme. (laughs) 
is our way out because we don't know how to tell our parents or our dads because my mom was totally empowering like all the time you know depend on yourself don't depend on a man to you know provide for you provide for yourself and so for school I applied to Texas State and it's in East East Texas. I can't think of the name. And somehow they lost my application. It was right before the online application process. And they had lost my application. I got so annoyed. I'm like, they lost my application. So anyway, I ended up going to Texas State, which is only about an hour north of San Antonio. And my freshman year, I mean, I had the regular basic classes, class sizes of like 500. And I just expected, yeah, it was, it was like a huge auditorium and I mean, you were just one in 500, like yeah. a nameless just, person. They don't even, yes. care. they don't care. They don't care because basically your grade is basically your midterm and your final. Yeah. Yeah. We had, um, it was my algebra class actually that was that, I mean, most of them were pretty big that were just the basic classes, but the algebra class sticks out the most to me because it was 10 questions. Um, the test were 10 questions and you just took it and that was it. And so I didn't study. I didn't do any of the homework. And I just assumed that, you know, just like high school, I was going to be able to just do fine. And it, and I didn't get it even when I would get seventies, you know, I, I mean, which is seventies pretty good for not studying. Right. <laughs> for just algebra Because I don't think people realize College algebra is a different freaking beast. It's ridiculous and I hate it and I'm glad I'm done with it and I won't ever. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I, I look back and I just like shake my head at myself because I just, I didn't get it. And so I didn't get it until my second semester. So my first semester, my GPA was a 2.3 and I'm like, okay, like, you know, but it, it didn't bother me as much until the spring semester. And I made like a 2.4 and I was like, oh man, like what, what's going on? Like, oh crap, I'm going to, I'm going to fail here. I mean, I knew I wasn't going to, I just knew that I had to do something different that my laissez-faire, oh, I'm just going to get this. It's just going to stay in my head and be able to be on a test. And then finally, when I did apply myself, I mean, I pretty much made the dean's list every semester after that. I mean, all I had to do was do the homework. I I feel so silly looking back at it. And I don't know what I thought I was doing or what I was trying to prove, like that I was so smart just to sit in class. It wasn't, I wasn't that smart, I guess. No, I wasn't. (laughs) No, like, you know, retent is completely different. You got to practice what you're learning. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to do it in a test. And that's that's all that came down to. What was your kind of college experience like through that time? Were you involved in any sororities? Because I have friends who graduated from Texas State San Marcos. And they, I know that they have like some Latina first turn sororities and stuff like that. Or were you just somebody who you're, you were like, look, I'm away from home. I don't want to mess with my grades after this semester. So I'm just, your, your head was in the books. Um, I think there's a lot of different factors going on. So my, my freshman year, 
my boyfriend at the time lived in San Antonio. So I really did not connect a lot with Texas State because I would go like Thursdays and go back to San Antonio and hang out with him. Okay, I need to ask you, is that why you ended up going to Texas State, San Marcos? Because you, you could have gone to Baylor. Look, they sent you a thing. And Baylor, just for reference, people know, uh, San Antonio and Dallas are about three and a half to four hours away from one another. Baylor is about an hour outside of Dallas. So you decided to stay an hour outside of San Antonio. Is it, was it for your boyfriend? You tell me the truth, girl. You gotta give me the real cheese man on that. It probably was. I want to say now that it wasn't. I mean, part of it too was tuition, you know, looking at the cost. So I know the cost was a big factor. I didn't apply to any other schools, though. I was completely opposed to going to UT because to me, I felt like UT, people were just going there because of the name. But I also didn't apply anywhere else. I didn't research any schools. I just, I don't even remember why I even picked Texas State, other than it being close by, like opposed to other schools. Because I did look at UNT. I don't remember if I applied or not. That's where I graduated from. Um, I really loved the campus, uh, but it was so far away. So I was scared to go that far. I knew I wanted to leave the city, but I did not want to be that far away but if you're listening to this and you're considering it I absolutely yes you should go far away don't don't go just an hour (laughs) you gotta go further away I think that's you know that added to me being able to get distracted more by home um, and not really integrated into the campus as well as I could have my freshman year another thing was at the time Texas State currently now it's considered a Hispanic serving institute to do that, you have to have like 20% of your student population, I believe, or 25% to be his, uh, a Hispanic serving institute. And Texas State is now, but at the time it wasn't. And I mean, I just remember feeling like the most brown person on campus. My uh, roommate was completely opposite of me in appearance. Uh, she was quite blue eyes, blonde hair, and she'd never talked to me. And so that didn't make me feel any better. Oh. Yeah, she did not talk to me until my boyfriend came around and she was all, <laughs> talk- yes, yes, oh, I was. Girl. I had to excuse her in a jungle or what? <laughs> no, she wasn't ever really around. All she ever did was because she was, she joined a sorority. And so um, she was hardly ever there. But I feel like for myself, it wasn't until the end of my sophomore year that I found my other Latinos. Um, A funny thing about going to school there where I felt more of a minority coming from San Antonio, where it's like 70 or 80 percent Latino. And then my school was 99 percent Hispanic. I really embraced my roots. I would blast the cumbias uh, in my car everywhere I went and, you know, made it a point to talk to anybody that was Latino. And, you know, it's a lot of our custodians, a lot of the cafeteria workers. And I would make it a point to to say hi and talk to them because I felt like I was making them proud by being a student there. You know, like, we can make it. We're here. So at what point did you decide you wanted to go into counseling? 
Um, that came later, um, much later. There's a lot of little events that happened. Well, what is, so what did you graduate school with? With what type of degree did you end up graduating with? I graduated with a psychology degree. Okay, so it's not um, too far-fetched. You did graduate. Not too far, but I actually started off as a computer science major. Okay, so that's like a total, so what made you go, okay, that is like a total pivot, right? Going from computer science to psychology. What made you go from what make that leap? Oh, I will tell you my story. I'm just like laughing to myself thinking about it. So back to my freshman and sophomore years, my freshman year, um, I was taking computer science classes. That's probably not a great year to take computer science or STEM classes because you're still trying to learn everything. Um, so my second semester, I was taking, um, I think it was like C++. And one of my peers, who was a Latino male, um, asked me to see my code. And for those of you that aren't familiar, code is like your, uh, it's like your essay. You know, you're writing your, it's a language, but you, it's like an essay. And so everybody has their own writing style. And so anyway, he asked to see it. And I'm like, yeah, sure. I didn't think anything of it. Well, he literally copied my code and turned it in. And so I, you know, whenever our professor was giving back our assignments, he called us both up front. And then he accused me, me. He directed his comments at me that, you know, I could get expelled for this. And I, what do you think made him direct his comments to you? Was, do you think it was because you're a female? Yeah, of course. I mean, I was one of three other females in the classroom. And what made it worse was that my friend didn't even you know, say anything. Of course, you know, he was a student too, um, probably scared, but I, I, and he did it like at the end of class, he called us up. There were still students in the classroom. It was really embarrassing for me to, for, for myself, for my own ego. I've never been accused of anything like that. And what was the response to that? Nothing, nothing. I said nothing. I didn't stand up for myself. I, I didn't know what to do. I was so embarrassed and I, I, nothing. I never, I never spoke to anyone about that. Um, I actually just changed my major. I felt like a failure because at the time I was making B's and C's. And later I found out that those were really good grades for STEM field, but I never told a single soul about it. I just figured that it wasn't for me. And I changed it to communication design. Yeah, I know. Like so heartbreaking. <laughs> you saw my body language. Like, I guess that's so heartbreaking. That makes it like, I am so upset for you because I just think of how many other girls and how many other girls of color go through that, right? This is not, it's a unique experience to you, but across the country, it's probably not a unique experience. And that, like, that's heartbreaking to me. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because it wasn't like, I mean, I don't think anyone intentionally tries to segregate, but it, you're more comfortable talking with people that are like you. And so there was three other Latinos and they were all male. So we, you know, we would do our work together and then everybody else was white. So of course for myself, like I, I kind of depended on the male Latinos as my friends and I didn't really explore outside of that. Like I said, it was my freshman year. I definitely don't recommend your freshman year to be taking any sophomore level courses because they were, they were sophomore level, but nobody advised me differently. 
I didn't know. My parents didn't know anything about college. Um, my high school counselors weren't helping me at all. They didn't help me. I was really angry at the time because back to backtrack a little bit in high school, I wanted to take dual credit classes and my high school advisor advised me not to. She, or she was like, oh, you should uh, take AP courses because dual credit doesn't necessarily transfer. Of course, I don't know that that's not true. And I take AP courses. I didn't get any AP credits because we weren't you know, challenged enough to be able to pass an AP exam. Um, so that was just setting me up for what, I don't know. I felt like it was just trying to get the school money because they get more money for students taking AP courses versus a student who's taking dual credit classes. Yeah. Oh my gosh. This is so making, like when I read your bio and, and what you really wanted this to focus on, this is making so much sense to me now. Oh like, yeah. <laughs> it, it really, it really, really is because we, you know, when you're a kid, you don't know how to advocate for yourself and being sure. first generation, your parents don't know how to advocate for you either. Yeah. And oh my gosh, this is just making so, so much sense in regards to where we're going to go. Yeah. Okay. So take me now through the path of you finally deciding you graduate, you graduate with, and you've had these experiences, which you've had these experiences in high school with nobody advocating for you and people steering you away for what you thought you should do. But you're probably thinking, well, I'm a kid. This isn't an advisor. They're telling me. So they're probably, they probably know better. Right. And you're taking the advice of that, of what you think has somebody who has your best interest. Mm -hmm. Then this happens in your classes and your STEM classes. And if you're not somebody who has, I feel like when you advocate for yourself, that's something that's taught. Right. I don't think yeah. it's, not, it's not always innate. And some people can be very innate, like, uh-uh, this is what's going to happen. I think that's probably me. <laughs> not always, but I think, I mean, now as an adult, for sure, but I think I had some of that as a child. But now going through these experiences and you go through your college experience, did you have any other experiences like that before you graduated? Not that I can recall off the top of my head. But you made me think about something when you were talking about like some people have that innate in them. I think that I always did, but I remember my mom always like, oh, Norma, and like, like we would go somewhere and somebody would mistreat her or think that she can't, she couldn't speak English. And, you know, I would stand up for her and I would, you know, and she would immediately be like, don't be disrespectful. And I think, you know, that probably gave me that don't be disrespectful later and kind of muting myself, which hindered me at the time, and you know, especially my freshman year in college. And then, so after that, I changed my major to communication design and I was doing fine. I was actually doing very, very well, but I felt like I didn't have a passion for it. And as much as I hated changing my major for a third time, I really fell in love with psychology and it, it was back to that. I, it was back to that easy. Um, that is something I like to tell people. If something is easy and you love it, there's nothing wrong with you doing that. For some reason, we're told that things need to be hard in order for us to want to do them. But really, if it's easy, it's probably because it's your calling. Where computer science, I loved it and it was fairly easy per se. 
I don't know that it was that sit back and enjoying. Like I, I don't looking back at it now, I'm like, okay, I probably could have done it and I would have been doing it maybe for the money or the prestige or like what everyone had been pushing me to do. Like, oh, um, you're really good at computers, you're really good at technology, you should do that. And while I enjoy working on, you know, technology stuff and doing those types of things. The work itself, like, I have no interest in it, you know, to do that all day. I was like, oh, my God, I could not sit at a computer all day long working on code by myself and not having any interaction with others. And I realized that later. So after I graduated, that was how I kind of realized a little bit more of what interested me. I had a typical paper pusher job it was like it was just a tent job because I was still with my boyfriend at the time and we were going to move out of state <laughs> so so we made it through college and that's about far, as far as we made it through but anyway so I took a temp job after college and it I learned a lot but it was just so boring we weren't allowed to talk so I worked for ETS oh yeah yeah which, that which was very well for me <laughs> I found out not for me either. I didn't know at the time. So when people first meet me, I'm very, very quiet. And I think it's just like my, I, I like to sit back and watch before I interact with people. And so, but I'm, I'm super talkative. After you get to know me, I don't shut up. <laughs> and so um, my first job after college was for the educational testing services. And we sat on the side or the site that I worked in was proofing. And on the other side was the readers. And so it had to be very quiet for them to be able to read and not be distracted by any talking. Anyway, but I, it was in a beautiful building, like on the sixth or seventh floor near the medical center in San Antonio. You could see the beautiful downtown and everything. And I just remembered, like, this is the best job ever. And then two, three months passed. And I was like, oh, my God, I hate this job. It's the worst <laughs> thing ever. Um, I realized after that, that I needed to have people interaction. After that, I got a job in HR. I absolutely loved it. I interviewed people all day long. Um, unfortunately, it didn't offer uh, any room for me to grow into a better position. And so I ended up working for um, or getting a job working at a community center, working with out of school, out of school youth. And it's another term for high school dropouts. The state of Texas at the time had a program that helped high school dropouts get their GEDs and either help them find a job or go into college. I loved it. It was, it was wonderful to be able to work with these kids and give them that hope. And then aside from that, I also did a telephonic uh, mentoring thing for this other program. It's called AIM Truancy. And so that also worked with kids who were at risk for dropping out. Um, and then talking with these kids while I had my own challenges growing up, I never thought school was or college was not a possibility for me. And a lot of these kids, the thought of college, the thought of graduating high school, the thought of more had never even occurred to them. You know, poverty was just where it ended. So I, I think that's when I started kind of seeing the, the, the counseling, the counseling, like, all right, I want to be a counselor. 
I would I would have loved to be a high school counselor, but in the state of Texas, you have to teach for two years before you can become a counselor. I've always been opposed to being a teacher. And so I was like, no, it's not the route for me. So I went into mental health counseling and I went to A&M San Antonio, which is now an established university. But at the time it was a very small, um, it was actually an extension of Texas A&M. Kingsville, yeah. For anybody that goes to UTSA, I'm sorry, but I hate UTSA. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I just know a lot of students that went there. And based on my experience from going to Texas State and UTSA, I felt that UTSA wasn't as student-oriented as Texas State was. (laughs) You kind of have two different things that you do. You are a clinical manager for a health insurance company and then you also have your own life coaching practice so tell me about being a clinical manager for a health insurance company how does that and is that something that you think has opened your eyes into your practice your own personal practice are there things that you brought from one thing to the other other than understanding the dynamics and how you know, mental health, behavioral health works. I don't feel that one helped the other. Does that make sense? No, totally, totally. Well, so, okay, speaking of, right, you specialize in helping in your private practice. You specialize in helping people overcome childhood adversities to better navigate their career development. That's why I was saying, like, the things that you were telling me, I'm like, oh, my gosh, that (laughs) so makes sense now. And I was going to ask you, like, what steered you in that direction? But I feel like you probably just tapped into the things that you experienced and want to help people get over those things. So let me kind of share with you something that, you know, I'm sure other people in some way have kind of experienced. When I was a freshman in high school, and that's so weird that I was thinking about this today, and it kind of applies to what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. When I was a freshman in high school, I had an English teacher who was also the cheer coach. And she, like, was totally racist. Let's just be, be real. And I had grown up being like a pop Warner cheerleader. So I was going to uh, try out for the cheer squad and everything. And she happened to be my English teacher. And here I am thinking, oh, she's my English teacher. This is awesome. Not knowing that she's like a totally racist woman. And, and for some reason, it was really the girls that she picked on, not the boys, the Latina girls, not, you know, not the boys. And One day she, I don't remember what we were talking about, but she took me out of the classroom outside and told me that she wasn't going to allow me to try out for her squad because she didn't want bimbos like me on her cheer squad. And this was when I was 13 years old. I'm about to be 43 in November. So the fact that 30 years later, I so vividly remember a teacher telling me that means that there was an impact that was made. You've had your experiences where people have tried to steer you away from certain things. So tell me, like, what are the things that you see most in regards to things that people are trying to kind of recover from, I guess, in their childhood that has still, that still bleeds into their careers now? I think one of the biggest things definitely peers not necessarily peer pressure, but expectations. Like for example, I had a client, and I feel like this is common for lots of people. Their 
peers were like, yeah, you should do this. You should do this because they, they think that's what's best for that person. And that, that person listens to the advice is kind of like forcing themselves into this role. So for this particular client, it was a leadership role. And while she had the ability to do it, she really didn't have a passion for it. She said her passion was helping others, you know, in more direct service, right? So she did. And I think that's another thing that a lot of times people think that because you're really good at a job that you should then the next move is to be in leadership. But some people really prefer to work directly one-on-one with the person they're serving with. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you need to become a leader because you're good at that or a trainer or whatever, um, unless you have that innate drive within you. So I think because we're so used to in the Latino community of listening to our elders, our peers and advice that we feel obligated. Like we, if we care about someone, then we're going to take their advice, you know, in gold as if it's the best thing in the world. And it's really hard to decipher, like, it's okay to say no. It's okay for us to recognize that, hey, you know, that that doesn't really align with me. And I think we haven't been taught that, you know, that if something doesn't feel right, or it's not, it doesn't make you happy, you don't have to do it. I remember my mom growing up, a lot of the time she would say, este mundo es para sufrir. And I'm sure other people have heard that too, right? Meaning, you know, this life is about suffering. And if we have that mentality in us that we got, we have to suffer in order for things, good things to come to us. Like, it's just crazy. Like we should not be suffering. (laughs) And so that's the other part of, of, I see the struggles is that a lot of us feel obligated to give back to our families, to give back um, and to, stay within the norms of what our family expects from us. It's happened twice uh, with my family when me and my high school, high school slash college boyfriend broke up. Both my sister and my brother were like, oh, you're so dumb. Why did you break up with him? Why did y'all break up? He, because he's an electrical engineer. And they're like, you could have had such a great life. And as if I could have not done that for myself. And I don't think they meant it with, you know, malintent. I think it's just that perspective of that was the only way out, I guess. So that was the only, you know, with this limited thinking of like, that was my way of having a grander life as if there was no other way to have one. I want to go back to what you were saying when you were saying what your mom would say about suffering, because I really feel like there's something that we put in ourselves, right? Or maybe it's it's generational trauma that's continued to pass down and pass down that if we're not suffering, we're not we're not enough, right? That if if something comes easy, then did you really do enough work to to do that? Or whether it's like for example, I come from a very middle class background and people could easily say well are you really Latina enough because you didn't suffer the way people should suffer without saying like if my parents have worked to elevate isn't that what we're all trying to do right isn't aren't we always trying to make it better for the next generation so 
why do we hold ourselves into this thing that we need to continue to suffer? I think it's what she said. It's just generational. You know, I'm sure she probably heard it and not seeing anything different. I think that that's another thing. Like, you know, I've been called selfish, but I feel like there's nothing that I've done that has been selfish. I've always been there for all of my family whenever they need me. And my brother, I mean, no one's ever called him selfish. But me as a woman, I'm selfish. And that I think also adds like guilt and not just for myself, but also for the clients that I see. You know, a lot of times we as Latina women feel the need to have to always constantly be sacrificing ourselves for um, our family, our friends, and then we come last and we get nothing out of ourselves, out of our like giving back to our own selves. Let me ask, like, what are some things? So what are a couple, like you said, peers, but what are the couple most common things that you see from people in regards to, like I said, trying to work through in their adversity? And where do you, how do you think that that is hindering their career development? So one of the biggest misnomers, misconceptions is working hard. People believe that working hard gets you the next level, gets you the promotion, gets you the raise, and it doesn't. An example I like to give my clients is, do your parents work hard? Do they work hard every single day to provide? Did they work hard for you to provide? You know, and I know my parents did. They worked hard to give us everything that they could, but they that did not equate getting promoted. That did not equate making more money. And so it's really changing that mindset that hard work alone is not going to get you the next step. And I see that, you know, people want to do the best job they possibly can. And I completely think that's important, but then they don't highlight themselves. We're not taught to say, hey, look at me. We just want our work to show for itself. And while that might be good in some workplaces, most workplaces, it doesn't help you. All all it does is, you know, give you, you're doing the work. You know, it's what's expected of you. And what happens, the person who gets promoted and moves ahead is the person not only does the hard work, but also says, hey, look at this awesome job that I did. Hey, how are you? You know, making those connections with the right people. Now, the right people doesn't mean brown nosing. A lot of times, you know, that's like a, I think it puts us at a, I can't find the word for it, but for ourselves, I think in the Latino community, doing something such as like, quote unquote, brown nosing means that you aren't working hard for that. I can't find the actual words I'm looking for. So hopefully it'll make sense. But, and so making connections with a person should never be just for your sole benefit. And so I think for us, we were never really taught about mutual collaborations. I think we're only taught to give of ourselves for the greater good, you know, for the, you know, you sacrifice all of yourself for the family good. You do everything you can to make sure the family is doing well, but it's never been like, oh, I'm going to, collaborate so that we can all do well kind of like you said right so we can all level up and rise and so that's that's one of the things like you know we're not really taught that hard work does not equal 
getting a raise. It does not equal moving up. Another big thing that I see is that you really have to know how to market yourself. And marketing yourself is not selling out. A lot of times, you know, there's that thought of like you're selling out because you are trying to show out, right? But if we don't say what we can do, no one will ever know. You know, we will continue to be wallflowers because no one knows what you can do or what you want to do. People will tell you what they think you should do. But if you're not saying what you want to do, those people don't know. You may not know that talking to so-and-so, Jennifer, whatever, whoever's name, if you don't tell them, hey, you know, I really like doing X, Y, Z. I'd love to do this because of X, Y, Z. Then, you know, that, that could lead you to that person being like, hey, you know, so-and-so said they had a job that was similar to that. And all it takes is that, right? That thought, you know, a couple of weeks, months, maybe even years go by and someone, you know, hits you up and says, hey, I remember you said you used to like to do this. Are you still interested in that? I know this awesome opportunity. Well, I did have another one, like kind of one last question before we start wrapping it up and everything, because there's, we could go on forever, right? There's just so many. Yeah. How do you tell, especially like what you've experienced and what I've experienced, and what so many of us have experienced are microaggressions. And those are things I think that carry on into from childhood into adulthood. How have you worked with people in regards to when they are experiencing microaggressions or how to identify microaggressions and how to address them when it comes to their career? Um, it's funny because I think the people that I've worked with haven't really realized <laughs> that 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 that's going on so I haven't worked with it directly other than overcoming the imposter syndrome and I think that they're too because I think that those I think go hand in hand yes you start thinking am I worth it enough am I worth because you've been having these microaggressions of people telling you you're not and there's still something in the back of your mind I know I have imposter syndrome from time to time I think Mm -hmm is this one is what I'm doing good, even with the podcast, like for the first time, I feel like this is what I'm supposed to be doing. But then I still have doubts, like, does anybody even care that I'm doing this? Am I even is am I even good at what I'm doing? So please, like, I would love to hear in regards to how those go hand in hand and how you work with them in regards to overcoming imposter syndrome. Yes. So I've done more work with overcoming imposter syndrome and definitely it it comes from microaggressions. There's things that people say to you that you don't even realize how deep it it impacts you. And it could be even unimportant people. Sometimes we feel like it has to come from someone that we care about for it to really impact us. But even people that are not important, such as, for example, one time I was in an interview and I had a gentleman, a white gentleman, ask me, um, how, how, what was different about me that I made it out and my siblings didn't. Yeah, that was in an interview. <laughs> yes, I was, uh, that, that was like just finishing my bachelor's degree. And I was like, what? You know, and the position was to work with Latino families in their homes. And so 
I feel like they didn't think I was experienced enough um, to work with Latino families, but it's like, I'm a, I'm a Latina. I've, I've lived it. I've lived it. I think I can do this, but right. Then that led to me being like, who do I think I am to, to be able to work with Latino families? Of course, I didn't get that job, but that was what I don't even know over <laughs> many years ago. It was like in 2008. But that stuck with me, right? Like, why didn't he think, one, why did he think that was appropriate? And two, why would you, what, what does it matter? You know, what was special about me? Nothing was special about me because everyone has the same opportunity. I feel like by signaling, by saying something was special about me, that then it's unique and no one else can do it. That's not true. And so then it kind of like the cycle inside of you where you get told something and it ruminates in you and it makes you wonder like, well, what was different and how come? And a lot of it, it's not necessarily what was different. It's, it's just that, you know, you moved forward in an opportunity when you, when you were afraid, you know, a lot of times we, we, we keep going, everybody is afraid. And so in regards to imposter syndrome, that's one of the biggest things everyone needs to know is that we are all afraid. When we're trying something new, you know, we have to think of ourselves like if we were one years old and we fell, we're trying to learn how to walk. Well, you know, would we laugh at the child or would we encourage the child and treat yourself like you would a one-year-old version of yourself learning how to walk? That is such a good piece of advice because I think for so many of us, it's always surrounding yourself with the right people too, right? It's, are you going to have people who are just like, ah, oh, whatever, or are you going to have people around you saying, hey, it's okay. What can we help you with to make it better? I think that's so important. Yes, yes. So with imposter syndrome, you know, another thing to look back at is look at all your wealth of experience and not just education-wise, everything, years of everything that you've overcome. And we overcome so much all the time. We just don't ever recognize it because it's become our second nature. You know, being able to manage your household and coordinate everything, make it to work on time, you know, all the different things you have going on. Those are things to celebrate, you know, because there's a lot of people that can't do all that, you know, and not to look down on those people, but you got to just kind of celebrate yourself and celebrating yourself doesn't mean, you know, not celebrating others or looking down on them as well. And so for the imposter syndrome, another thing that I like to look at with them is all of what you know within you and your education, how does, how does that validate whatever it is that's going inside you? So for the client that I was talking about earlier, where she was going back and forth, because I feel like examples give give a better, better understanding of everything. She and her heart wanted to go into a certain master's degree program. And she actually had stopped it and started going the other direction because so many people had pushed her to, to go into the other direction. And then her husband got sick and she had to take a step back and she just enrolled. And then that's when we actually got to meet like a little bit after that. And, you know, we, we worked through that and she recognized that she was doing one thing for, for others and not really following her heart. And so she 
contacted the college and it really worked out for her. They were able to, where she wouldn't have to lose any of those credits where she, it was, it was all working out. But for herself, like she had to get over everyone else being right and her being wrong and trusting herself because after so many years of having heard, why would you do this? Why would you do that? And I know her from years. So I, I I know the experiences that she has. So I know that part of her, but a lot that probably applies to a lot of people. And we've been questioned so many times for all of our decisions, big or small, it becomes our second nature to question ourselves when there's something that we want to do, something that feels easy to us because we feel like it should be hard. It shouldn't be just become easy. Kind of like what I mentioned about myself when I was choosing majors and I changed stuff and stuff was going good and stuff was not going so well. I didn't actually mention this part, but I always like to mention it. Um, when I was getting my master's in counseling, I actually changed my major because I thought I wanted to teach. Remember, I have to teach in order to be a counselor. So for one year, I took bilingual education courses and they were so hard. I hated them. I loved what I was learning, but I just couldn't see myself teaching, even though that was another part of myself. I felt guilty. I felt like since I know Spanish, I should be teaching in bilingual education and all this stuff. It goes back to that. I felt like I owed it to our community to give back. But and there's so many different ways, right? There's, yes. I feel like we're like sucked into one path, but there's so many different ways that we are yes. able to give back to our community. Right. We get, yeah, we get tunnel vision. We feel like the only way back, giving back is by giving directly. But I had a professor tell me, he, he was my counseling professor. He's like, oh, how are your courses going? And I was like, oh, you know, they're fine. It's just, they're so hard. And I said, I'm doing fine in my classes, but it's so much work. And he said, well, have you ever thought that maybe it's because it's not what you're supposed to be doing? And that stuck with me. And right after that, I changed back to counseling. And I, I realized that things don't have to be hard, you know, and I think that's where imposter syndrome comes from, too, where we feel like we have to have earned level of whatever it is that we want to do before we can feel that we've arrived. And this arrived mentality, I mean, I always tell everybody, you don't want to have felt that you arrived because when you start to feel that you've arrived you no longer learn you no longer grow that is so true so this is one thing that I've learned in regards to applying for jobs and everything like that and and something I've even said in interviews because I truly believe it and you know as women and then particularly as Latina women we feel like we have to hit 100% of the bullet points in order to, whatever the qualifications are, in order to apply for a job. Guys will see five things out of 20 that they have and they'll apply for it. But also what you were saying just applies so real to me because I always say, if I know, if I can hit 100% of those things, why am I even applying for this job? I'm going to be so bored because it doesn't give me room to grow and to learn more skills. So I always would love to go into a job where I'm like, 60 to 75% qualified for because that gives me room for growth and it gives me yeah. room to like be excited to learn about something. Otherwise, I'm going to be super bored. So I think what you're saying right there is so key. People want to work with you and try and figure out how to 
get over again these childhood adversities in order to help their trajectory and their career. What are the t- who are the types of people that you that you work best with in regards to what they're seeking out and how can people reach you? So people can reach me by going to my website or Instagram. I like Instagram. It's my favorite, but I have all different social medias. But my Instagram is Dr. Norma Reyes because I do have my PhD. <laughs> yes, girl, you take that doctor. And uh, my website is drdrreyeslifecoaching.com. And so the best people that I like to work with, I mean, I'll work with anybody that is willing and ready to face those challenges because it is, it's a lot of internal. So I like to say that this is all anyone that's ready to move forward because I am licensed as a therapist and therapy itself is kind of getting over your past and those challenges. Right. And then the next step is being able to move forward and using those childhood adversities to propel you because they have made us stronger. They've made us more resilient. And we're, you know, I am looking to work with a person who's ready to take on all those skills and experience that they've had and use it to their advantage because um, there's a lot of skills. And so Plan Happenstance is a career development in theory. And so there's five skills. And I'll set it in quickly. It's curiosity, optimism, flexibility, risk-taking, and persistence. So those five skills is something that I will look at with the client and see where they need to grow. Because if you are intentional with using these five skills in different areas of your life, then it'll propel the career even further. But you got to recognize where it is that you are maybe having challenges in using those five skills. And that's actually from John Crumbles. And that's where I based my research for my PhD. Well, thank you so much, Norma. Let me, so let me ask you these final two questions. Okay. What can always make you smile no matter how you're feeling? Oh, that would be my kids. Yeah. Just seeing them enjoying life and being carefree. That can always make me smile. And final question, because we start with the wine and we end with the wine. What is your favorite type of wine? What red, white, or rosé? And do you have a particular favorite? don't have a particular favorite. I don't drink that much wine. It's so special that you drink wine today. Yeah, I'm much more of a cider person. But if I had to choose between white, red, and rosé, I would never choose red. I hate dry wines. (laughs) Um, So I don't know. I'm kind of stuck between white and rosé. I'm going to go with rosé. I think I've had one. I don't remember the name that I really, really enjoyed versus white. That's my final answer. (laughs) Norma, thank you so much again for for coming on the Wine and Cheese Men podcast. There's been a lot of information. I know we could have really gone on and on and on. So I appreciate you. I appreciate the information that you shared. And we will make sure that all of the information that you shared is going to be on the show notes as well. So. Thank you so much for having me.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Wine and Cheese Med Podcast. For more information on Norma, please see the show notes for links to her website and social media accounts. Check out all things Wine and Cheese Med on the, our website at thewineandcheesemedpodcast.com. There you will find the names of the wines we drink or the wines I drink by episode as well as additional information on me, the podcast, and you can even apply to be a guest straight from the website. You can also find us on Instagram at The Wine and Chisme, Facebook and LinkedIn at The Wine and Chisme Podcast. Remember, if you want to hear more Wine and Chisme, please subscribe, rate, and review. Those five-star ratings are always appreciated and positive reviews are appreciated even more. Until next time, mi gente, saludos.